Okay, my name is Sam Miller, and I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning. So please, let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. We just honor you and praise your name. We ask, we come before you, Lord, and ask these things because, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. We ask that you would heal Mickey McGuire, that you would comfort her, and that you would uh, give the doctors wisdom as they um, find out ways to battle this cancer that, is, uh, that she's experiencing. We pray for Dan as well, that you would give him comfort and strength. We pray for the Pregnancy Resource Center. We pray that you would give uh, your blessing to the baby bottle campaign and that funds would be raised that would allow women and men facing unplanned pregnancy another option, uh, and that they would come to know you through that process, and that they would desire to um, to save life and and understand life with you. I also pray for for MH serving the death, the deaf. I'm sorry, serving the deaf in an unnamed location for security reasons. We pray for protection and fruitful spreading of the gospel among the deaf there. I also pray for Stephanie. I'm really excited about this, the, the, the Bible store, the bookstore, and I just pray for your blessing on that there in Tunisia. And I also pray for Stephanie that as she transitions to Colorado that you will bless her, that you will help her to have a smooth transition and really have a place to connect uh, with other believers there in Colorado and that you would... Uh, help her ministry there to flourish. I pray for the Hill. Brett is uh, speaking at the Hill this morning, and we just pray that you would bless their service there in Roanoke and, and be with Brett, help him to speak clearly and to spread the gospel. We also pray for the Ukraine. We pray for protection for our brothers and sisters that are in that area. We also pray for peace, that people would be drawn to you and we just ask for, it's complicated, but we just ask for peace, Lord, that we, we ask that the rulers uh, that are able to affect change, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and help them to, to keep peace in that area. And lastly, I pray for Ryan. I pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, speak through him, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and help us to be open to what you have to say to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sam. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 14 today, so if you want to turn there, you can. Um, my name is Ryan Litton. Uh, if you don't know me, um, I am uh, one of the people who gets to preach here occasionally. I'm not the, the pastor here, but uh, pastoral resident, I think is my title. If I have a title, I don't know. If I, if I didn't have a title before, I do now. I'm just going to give myself that title, pastoral resident. That's what I am. So um, I'm excited to be uh, with you this morning and to talk about John 14. Uh, in spite of the fact that there are some challenges in this text, uh, Jesus gives us some softballs like, uh, the Father is greater than I, uh, and anything you ask me, I'll do. Uh, you know, easy things to understand theologically. And so 
Uh, it's a fun text. So uh, when Brett asked me to preach this text, I responded, I think I'm going to be sick that day. So you should find someone else. Um, <clears throat> but in spite of that, uh, this, this is a great text and I, I really enjoy it. Um, Jesus is comforting his disciples in their anxiety. And I struggle with anxiety sometimes. And uh, that's a lot. I struggle with anxiety a lot of the time. Uh, and so it's just nice to see that Jesus is... Uh, comforting his disciples in the midst of that. It's like, it's nice to see how he's going to approach that in my life because that's how he's approached it in others' lives. But as, nor, as usual in uh, our sermons, we're gonna start with a question. So there's something I want you to ponder as we're going through the text today. And that is, uh, what did Jesus accomplish for us? Uh, if you had to sum up Jesus's work, what would you say? What would you say Jesus has done for us? Um, and likely you're probably going to say something to the effect of Jesus uh, forgave our sins, something like that. Um, and I'd just like to challenge you that uh, that is not an accurate answer. Uh, and uh, you just have to stay through the whole sermon to find what the accurate answer is. So just, you know, buckle up, right? Um, speaking of bu buckling up, this is the second service. So this is the second time I've preached the message. So you guys get to get the second draft. Uh, and uh, that's helpful because after the first service, uh, at the very end of the first service, I was like, man, I kind of took the easy way out on a few things. And then right after the first service, Neil came up to me and he was like, you should stop taking the easy way out on things. And I was like, dang it. Like, <laughs> okay, so we're not going to take the easy way out. Um, yeah, so, so buckle up. This is going to be fun. Um, so uh, one of the sources that I'm going to refer to in this uh, message pretty regularly is a book called uh, Life in the Trinity by Donald Fairbairn. I would strongly recommend that you uh, buy it and read it. Uh, second only to the Bible, uh, this book has influenced my life really more than anything um, other than the Bible, right? It's just, uh, it's fantastic. And really what he's trying to explore in that book is uh, the relationship that the Father has with the Son and what that, uh, how that impacts us as believers, so... Um, I was at the men's retreat this weekend. One of the things that I shared with them, and this is part of the anxiety for me, is uh, I have this sort of recurring narrative in my life of uh, abandonment where people just leave, right? Or stop being friends with me or stop talking to me or stuff like that. Uh, and my response to that, because I'm a little bit of a cynic, uh, is of course, of course that would happen. Of course they would leave, uh, obviously, right? And uh, I think we can probably all relate to this to some degree. We've, we've probably all experienced this uh, in some way in our lives, people leaving us uh, or, uh, you know, spurning us or rejecting us, that kind of thing. I think the disciples experienced this, and this is kind of where we're at in this text, is Jesus is talking about leaving, and they're not a fan. Uh, and we can appreciate this, right, if you've been working with Jesus for several years and things seem to be going better and better and better, uh, all of a sudden for Jesus to say, uh, and I'm going to be leaving soon, uh, that's, that's not going to be fun, right? Uh, no, I'd rather you not, right? I'd rather you, you stay or give me some more details about it, right? So I can imagine their response when Jesus says this, that it's just sort of like, of course, of course this, this would happen. Uh, of course the Messiah would leave us. Uh, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to manage? And it's in this context that Jesus comforts them. So we'll, we'll begin at the, um, the beginning of chapter 14 here. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas voices uh, what everybody's thinking by saying, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Uh, That's a pretty, pretty logical question. And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's fascinating to me that the word that gets used here for troubled regarding uh, how the disciples feel uh, is used of Jesus in the three chapters prior to this. In chapter 11, uh, he's troubled with uh, the grave of Lazarus. In chapter 12, he's troubled as he's considering going to the cross. And then in chapter 13, he's troubled when he's contemplating the betrayal of Judas. This is comforting because that means that being troubled is not sinful. Uh, It's normal. Having that kind of anxiety is normal uh, because Jesus experiences it. And from that experience of it, he can then comfort his disciples because he's not someone who is separate from their existence telling them it's going to be okay, to which we would say, what do you even know about this? He's someone who has entered their experience and knows exactly what it's like and can tell them it's going to be okay. But how do you think that goes? I mean, have you ever been anxious and somebody tried to calm you down? Um, doesn't really go well, right? Few things are uh, as useless in calming someone down as saying, calm down, right? It's kind of like in an argument, if you tell somebody to stop being defensive, it's not gonna help, right? I'm not being defensive. That was being defensive, right? <laughs> not helpful, not helpful, right? Uh, and so this doesn't help, right? Uh, the disciples are, are still kind of like, uh, right? Jesus is like, guys, don't worry, I'm leaving, but uh, I'm leaving to secure something for you. Yay, Jesus, that's cool. I still need you here, right? Like, I don't care what you're doing somewhere else, right? They're distressed that the, the Lord is leaving them. One commentator puts it this way, at the height of danger, it seems to them that Jesus is going into hiding in some foreign land, abandoning them to lay low for a while until the crisis blows over. They are aghast, agitated, filled with panic and apprehension at the thought of being left leaderless at such a crucial juncture. I think we experience this too, right? When we encounter any kind of suffering, any kind of grief, any kind of anxiety, our initial response tends to be, God, where are you? We, don't, we think he's left, right? We think he's gone somewhere else because certainly he can't be here because he's not going to be here if this is how I feel. Certainly I would feel differently if if I was in God's presence right now. That's not the case. They think he's going somewhere tangible. It's like he's trying to escape. You know, Mark Twain once said, God created man in his own image and man being a gentleman returned the favor, right? We expect God to be like us rather than trying to be like him. And so they want to escape to somewhere else. So when Jesus says he's leaving, they're like, he's stealing my idea, right? Like he's going to leave. That's not what's happening. Consistently in John's gospel thus far, we've had Jesus making spiritual statements that are being misunderstood as physical statements. You think back to uh, John chapter three, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do that. Right? Like, I'm pretty sure that's not going to work. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Right? 
consistently throughout John's gospel, we have this. And so we have the same thing here. And so this is why Thomas is like, we don't know where you're going, dude. Like, can you help us out here? And Jesus gives us kind of a confusing response. Uh, he basically says, the father is where I'm going, which is not a location, by the way, right? The father is where I'm going and I am how you will get there. The phrase Jesus uses here is a little bit confusing. He says, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But when Thomas asks for the way, you would just sort of expect Jesus to say, I'm the way, not the way, the truth, and the life. And so we could probably take this as like, I'm the true and living way. That the way that we get there is reliable, true, and living. It's not just like a door. And uh, this is pretty striking in light of where Jesus is in his ministry. He says, I'm the way when he's about to hang impotent on the cross. He says, I'm the truth when the lies of evil people are about to enjoy a spectacular triumph. And he says, I'm the life when within a matter of hours, his corpse will be placed in a tomb. So the cure to this anxiety isn't to lift the circumstance. It's knowing that the circumstance will end. You know, when we encounter suffering, when we encounter anxiety, we want God to take us out of the situation. God wants to take us through the situation. You know, you think about the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to you is death. What's on the other side of death? Jesus. Telling us it's going to be okay. You can go through this and I'm on the other side of it and it's going to be okay. So anything up to and including death Jesus can look at us and say, it's going to be okay. But we don't want that. We want Jesus to take us out of the situation. We want Jesus to stop the pain. We have the same struggle as, as Thomas. We want to know how to get there. But the emphasis isn't on where, the emphasis is on who. It's not the place that Jesus is going to, it's who he's going to. Jesus isn't talking about building a house for us. He's talking about including us in his family. See, in, that, in the ancient world, you have this kind of metaphor of the father's house. It doesn't refer to the physical structure. It, fer, it refers to uh, being included in the family and being under the protect, protection and providence of the father. This is why in Genesis, when God tells Abram, you are to leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you, it's kind of like a big deal because it's not like leave that structure. No, no, no. This is like leave everything that's keeping you safe and go to where I tell you you're going to go. That's what the father's house refers to. And so when Jesus says he's going to go to the father's house and include us in that, he's inviting us into his family. You're in God's family now. Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see that higher reality. He's not trying to encourage them with a retreat from the world. He's not trying to encourage them with an easy button that gets them out of the pain. He's trying to encourage them with stability that exists through the pain. That as everything is falling apart, they have something stable. They have a family that's stable. You think about early Christians who, when they convert to Christianity, likely lost their family. Why do you think early Christians call each other brother and sister so frequently? 
Because early Christians were constantly affirming to one another, even if your family left you, you have a family. No matter what has happened to you, you have a family. What does Jesus say when they're like, your mom and your dad and your, your brothers, they're looking for you. And he's like, who are my, the members of my family? These people, right? This is a transformational reality that Jesus is trying to give to the disciples and they just want the easy way out of the pain. So Jesus says, you will see the father at the very end of that, that statement to, to Thomas. And what does Philip do? Philip says what any of us would say. Uh, you said, we see the father. We will see the father. Are you going to show us the father? Can you like, you know, burning bush for us, you know, or something? Philip said to him, Lord, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus' reference here to knowing the, and seeing the Father prompts Philip to think, that he's promising them this imminent theophany, which is a fancy theological term for God visibly showing up, a revelation of God, burning bush, right? The Jews ask for this in Mark chapter eight, and so the disciples probably have experienced this to some degree, the people wanting this sign. And so is Jesus finally gonna do this? Is Jesus finally gonna like give them the, the vision that Isaiah had or the vision that Ezekiel had? And Philip basically is like, look, if you just give us that, then you can leave and that will be enough. That will get us through. I mean, how many times in our prayer lives do we say like, God, if you just do this, that would be enough. If you just do this, that's enough, that'd be enough for me. In response to this, Jesus continues to unpack the importance of our inclusion into the Trinitarian life. This passage is, is phenomenal for thinking about the Trinity because you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit throughout the whole passage. We see the Father by seeing Jesus because the Father is in Jesus just as Jesus is in the Father. It may well be that this is the most staggering thing that Jesus ever said in the ancient world because for Greeks, God is characteristically the invisible and Jews would count it as an article of faith that no man has ever seen God at any time. Yet somehow we can see God in Jesus. Just like 
John says at the beginning of the gospel, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten of God who is at the Father's side has made him known in John 1.18. So God can't be seen in a literal sense, but to know Jesus fully is to see the heavenly Father. John may wish his readers here who were more immersed in the Bible than any of us, right, uh, to think of Exodus 33.18. This is where Moses tells God, show me your glory. God replies, you can't see my face for no one can see me and live. But then he passes by and allows Moses to see his back, uh, which, you know, I'm not the pastor so I can say inappropriate things and then Brett can just pawn it off. This, I joke with my students that this is the nicest butt in the Bible, right? Because like God passes by Moses and he's like, you can see behind me, right? So anyway, yeah, horribly inappropriate, I know. Just uh, apparently God's got a nice butt, so yeah. Thank you, thank you. Hey, whoever thought you were gonna hear that from a sermon, right? Like, no. You didn't, right? Like Sam's like, I'm an elder and I'm going to go ahead and take you off the stage now. Um, so, so God passes by Moses. Moses gets to see this. Philip fails to grasp that Jesus is that manifestation. See, later in Exodus, right after this, uh, God makes a statement about himself. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That gets referenced again in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14, the uh, word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What, what John is telling us is that Jesus is that manifestation that Moses saw on Sinai. That Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God that Moses got to see. But we get to see him to a greater extent. Philip doesn't understand this. The two, the Father and the Son, are so closely connected that anyone who has seen the Son has seen the Father. It means that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. It's difficult to interpret this without seeing the Father and the Son as, in some sense, one, which makes it complicated later in the passage when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Another reason why I told Brett someone else should preach, right? Uh, just one of those passages that you're like, I don't know what that is. Since this has consequences for the prayer life of the disciples, Jesus proceeds to bring some of those out. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I don't know about you, but I haven't raised anybody from the dead recently, so I'm not really sure how this works out. And uh, taking the easy way out in the early service, I made the joke that like, I can't just say Ferrari B in the name of Jesus, right? Like that's like an easy example for, you know, God doesn't just give me whatever I ask for. But then you think about like losing somebody you love and you pray and you say, certainly God, this is, this is something that you want. This person loves you. I love you, I'm asking in your name, certainly you'll give me this. And then they die. And you read this passage and you're like, I mean, maybe I'm not a genius, but this seems pretty straightforward. Anything means anything, right? So how did I get that wrong?
There's no further qualification. I mean, it's easy for us to say, well, anything that you ask that's according to his will. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. That's what we say to try to make ourselves feel better about the text. He doesn't say that. So we're just left like, I'm going to ask him for things, and sometimes he's going to do it, and sometimes he's not. And this is the point where you're like, okay, well, then explain it to us. Sorry. There's, there's not an answer to this. This is the difficulty, you know, this is why, like, we can say what we want about legalism. We all want to be legalists because legalism has clear rules. This is the difficulty of relationship. This is the difficulty of being in a relationship with a loving God that, like, sometimes he does things and he's like, I'm not going to tell you why I did that. You know, God could explain to me exactly why I've lost the people that I've lost. It wouldn't cause it to not hurt. The example that I use with my students when I'm teaching problem of evil in, in theology is if I fall off this stage and break my leg and one of you is a doctor and you can explain to me why my leg hurts, the understanding of why my leg hurts does not impact the pain in my leg. So emotionally, when I lose somebody and it hurts, God could explain to me exactly why that had to happen and it's still gonna hurt. Still gonna hurt. There are some things we can say about this, even if we can't fully resolve it. He says this thing, uh, that, that this, these things are gonna be true because he's going to the Father. So we're no longer gonna see the Father in Jesus because we won't see Jesus anymore. So what are we to do? We see Jesus in each other. And through that, we see the Father. Jesus goes on to say that the Father will give us another helper, the Spirit of Truth. In light of the prior identification of truth with Jesus himself, it seems that what Jesus means here is not only that the Spirit will show the disciples what is true, but also that the Spirit will guide them to Christ, to the one who is the truth. Furthermore, we need to read the statements about what is Jesus's and what belongs to the Father in light of what Jesus has said about the love between the Father and the Son. Fairbairn, the book that I recommended, uh, puts it this way. He says, if it is correct to make these connections, then Jesus is saying here that the Holy Spirit, by coming to dwell in believers, will bring us to Christ, who is the truth, and will cause us to share in that which, is, that which Christ possesses, namely his eternal fellowship with the Father. This action of the Spirit will bring glory to Christ because it will share the glorious presence of, of God the Son with us. Jesus thus implies that the Holy Spirit brings believers into the fellowship that characterizes the Trinity. This is us being invited into God's family. The relationship that the Father has with the Son is the relationship that we have with the Father. When you become a Christian, it's not as though a new relationship begins to exist. You are incorporated into an eternal relationship that has never been broken. You are incorporated into eternal love that has never been broken. And if you have that kind of union with God, what more could you possibly want? Just like with the disciples, this is a matter of perspective. I want the Ferrari or I want someone that I love to be back from the dead 
And Jesus is like, you're just missing the point. That's not what I'm talking about. There is a bigger picture here that you are not aware of, and I'm asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust me. I mean, at the end of the day, the problem of evil, if God's so good, why do bad things happen? The answer to that is not an answer. The answer to that is at the end of the day, you have to decide, do I believe that God is who he says he is or do I not? And that, that's what we have. Either he is who he says he is or he's not. It's in this context that Jesus says that the disciples will do great things. What are these great things? Bringing more and more people into this family. What could possibly be greater than that? Again, we're focused on the tangible and Jesus is talking about the spiritual. What could possibly be greater than bringing someone into full union with God? What could be greater than that? How many people do you think Jesus brought into his father's house personally in his lifetime? And then compare that with how many people we have brought into his father's house collectively. I, I think we've, we've done greater things. Not because we're greater, but because of him, right? It's the, the song that we sing, yet not I, but Christ in me, right? Nevertheless, this doesn't resolve the tension. This is still difficult for me. I can preach this passage and then get down there and worship and cry because it's still frustrating. And I don't anticipate that it's going to stop being frustrating anytime soon. It's still hard because there's still things that I ask for that I'm like, clearly this is something you want, only to find out that it's not. Or to look at something and say, clearly this is something you don't want, only to find out that it is. Because we don't have the perspective that Jesus has. We're making the same, disciple, or the same mistakes the disciples did. We have a limited perspective, and so we have expectations based on that limited perspective. And a clear indication of this to me is in the middle of this, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How much of our time do we spend agonizing over why God isn't answering our prayers and let's juxtapose that against how often we spend time thinking about whether or not we're keeping the commandments. I'm willing to bet, I know at least in my life, those scales aren't even close. And so I think if, if we were to like have like Jesus show up here physically and say like, Jesus, why aren't you answering these things? His response might be, why aren't you being obedient? Yeah, 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 we'll get to that in a second, Jesus. Why aren't you answering these things? No, 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 no. Why aren't you being obedient? And part of the problem for us in this is that we don't connect love and obedience. We just, we have a difficulty there. Uh, again, Fairbairn here does a great job. He says, we tend to think that something can only be love if it's between equals. And when we're talking about equals, obedience is not appropriate. And so part of the reason we get annoyed when, everyone, when, when anyone speaks of obedience is that we don't like to admit that we're unequal with someone else. But when we're talking about Jesus, the first thing we need to do in order to follow him is admit that we are not his equals. And if this fact disturbs us emotionally, and I'll admit it disturbs me, then perhaps the reason is we're too proud to admit that we're not the highest beings in the universe. I mean, are we honest enough to say that sometimes we think God makes mistakes? 
Now, I'll readily admit that I don't think he does, but at the same time, I'll readily admit that I often think he does, <laughs> right? Like, I can, I can make the statement of faith that God's perfect, but then also sometimes in my life, I look at something and I'm like, well, you blew that. <laughs> like, that's not how that's supposed to go, right? By connecting love and obedience, Jesus is saying that for Christians, obedience is not an act of mere duty. We, the servants, are called to obey our master Jesus out of love, not duty. When Jesus commands us to do certain things, he's giving us the opportunity to love him by willingly keeping those commandments rather than flatly disobeying them or keeping them mere grudgingly or out of a sense of duty. We can love him by obeying him joyfully and willingly. Assuming that we've conceded that obedience can be an expression of love, what is it then that we're supposed to obey? I think probably the easiest thing to look at here would be the Ten Commandments. I'm doing pretty good with the Ten Commandments. I don't know about you guys. I'm probably at like 60%, 70%. haven't killed anybody recently, so, you know, I'm, I'm all right. Um, but, there, you know, Jesus met somebody that had that same sort of perspective, that, like, I've kept the commandments. This guy left dejected, so it's probably not a great perspective to have. Probably the most challenging thing that I've heard about the commandments in my life that remains challenging for me and probably will remain challenging for me for the rest of my life is uh, pastor and theologian A.J. Swoboda once said uh, that he can break nine of the commandments and get fired, but if he breaks the Sabbath, he'll probably get a raise. So we have to ask ourselves, how is our rest? Because if we take Jesus seriously here, our rest is indicative of our love for him. You know, fascinating thing about the creation narrative is that humanity is created on the sixth day. What happens on the seventh day? Sabbath. So humanity is created, and what is their first objective on their to-do list? Sabbath. I mean, that's got to speak to us, right? But do we do that? No. Do I do that? I mean, full disclosure, no, terrib I'm terrible at it, right? I am perpetually exhausted, and it's all my fault. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't do this. Let's consider the opening statement of the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is one of those things that we just zip right by in Scripture. Because, like, what does that even mean, and why does that even matter? But notice that the commands follow deliverance. God delivers, and then he gives expectations. See, we tend to see the law as a prerequisite so if we were right about the law, we would think that like God shows up in Egypt and he gives the Israelites a list and he's like, if you're real good at this for a decade or so, I'll come back and help you out. That's legalism. But that's not what happens. He delivers them from Egypt and then he says, here are my expectations. Here's how I'd like you to live. And I mean, this is precisely what Jesus does, right? Jesus heals people or delivers people. And then he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't approach someone and say, uh, your situation kind of sucks, but if you get your life together, I'll be back in about a week and then maybe I'll help you out if you're doing okay. That's just not how God behaves. But there's one little thing here that it's uh, another thing that's easy to miss that honestly I didn't even catch until I was talking to Brett at the men's retreat about our sermon. 
because uh, he's preaching the same text. And so like, we're going back and forth, right? About like, well, I'm gonna talk about this and I'm gonna talk about this. And then both of us sort of like hit this point and we're like, whoa, <laughs> it was great. Um, where do they leave before they receive these expectations? The house of slavery. Where's Jesus going? His father's house, right? This idea of houses, right? It, you have this notion of like uh, uh, expectations in a household, right? There's some houses you go into, you take your shoes off. Some houses you go into, you don't, right? A house operates by a certain set of rules and it's not because of the wood and the drywall. It's because of the family in the house. You have certain expectations in your house. There are certain expectations in the house of slavery. There are certain expectations in the father's house. God doesn't go to the people in the house of slavery and say, here's how you ought to live. He gets them out of the house of slavery and then puts them in his house and says, in my house, this is how we do things. One of the things that my wife and I do with our children um, who are here right now uh, <laughs> um, is we tell them like, hi, sweetie. <laughs> we tell them like, this is how Littons behave. Because frequently they'll tell us like, here's something I want to do because someone I go to school with does it. And we're like, right, but are they a Litton? No. Okay, well then maybe their family does things differently. Littons don't do that. The best example of this recently is my daughter, Amelia. Do you remember this, sweetie? Yeah, hi, baby. She told us the other day that she, she's five. She told us the other day she wants a boyfriend. I was not prepared for that conversation. Um, I thought I had a little while longer before I had to have that conversation with my daughter. Um, and so we told her no, and she said, well, you know, Cora has a boyfriend. And we're like, okay, well, is Cora five, or is Cora a, a Litton? No, okay, well, that's fine. She can do what she wants. That's how her family does things. But that's not how we do things. And then for like the next 20 minutes, she's in the back of the van just going, I want a boyfriend, I want a boyfriend. And I'm in the front going, oh Lord Jesus, deliver me. Um, yeah, the joys of parenting, it's phenomenal. Uh, but that, like, we all have that, right? Like, we all have, like, family values that we incorporate that, like, this is how our family does things. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. His family and his way of doing things. Let's continue in our passage. Judas, not Iscariot, which has to be, like, the best parenthetical in the entire Bible, right? Like, Judas, but not that one, right? Like, just to be clear, not that, that one. Um, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Again, the disciples don't understand Jesus. Again, you have this, Jesus is going to reveal himself, but like, how are you gonna reveal yourself to the disciples and not to everyone else, Jesus? Jesus is like, right, you're still thinking physically and not spiritually. You're still thinking what you want and not what I want, right? Take your shoes off for goodness sakes, right? Like follow the laws of the, the house, right? Like this is how we do things. So Jesus continues his, his merciful plea to them. Um, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. 
But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I live with, leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. In closing out this section, Jesus emphasizes that they should not be troubled. Why? Because he goes to the Father. As we've seen, that means that the Spirit is sent to us, giving us a tangible link to both Jesus and the Father. We are not orphaned. We are not excluded. No matter what negative family experiences you have, Jesus's family will not do that to you. And sometimes we experience that from Jesus's family, right? But like we don't experience that from Jesus and the Father, right? Because Christians aren't perfect. I know I'm not, but Jesus and the Father are. In closing, there's three things I'd like to focus on, and this is, this is from Fairbairn again. So uh, again, just highly recommend that book. Uh, first, Jesus is not telling them to avoid becoming afraid, as though that were incorrect, right? As though it's wrong for them to be afraid. He's telling them to stop being troubled and afraid. So the peace that he offers to the disciples and to us is the antidote to fear and anxiety that the disciples already feel. Like them, most of us wish that the concerns of the world would just go away. You know, I'm sure I'm the only person in here who's ever prayed to win the lottery, right? Because you don't want to pay bills anymore, right? Like, I just don't want to do that again, right? I just want that stuff to go away. But they do not go away, and Jesus doesn't even seem to want them to. <laughs> Which brings us to the second point. Jesus does not simply say he will give us peace. He says, my peace I give to you. And he explicitly says that, that this peace, his peace, is not the kind of peace that the world has to offer. When the world is able to offer us peace, which is never, basically, um, the peace it gives us is merely negative. It's just the cessation of hostility. It's just a ceasefire. But Jesus is offering us something different here, not the elimination of the storm, but the promise that one can find calmness in the midst of the storm. When there's merely a ceasefire, the hostilities can come back. So the world's kind of peace is, is temporary at best, but calmness in the midst of the storm can be deeper and more permanent because it doesn't depend on anything external. This is the kind of peace that he offers us. The third noteworthy thing about this passage is that, that the peace Jesus offers is connected directly to the Holy Spirit's ministry within a person. Jesus distinguishes between his ministry to people and the, the Spirit's ministry. He teaches them, the Spirit is going to remind them. And so as they face all of these non-peaceful aspects of their life from this point on, the Holy Spirit will remind them of what they have learned so that even as the storm rages about them, they can be people at peace with God and with themselves. As I said, you know, Fairbairn's book is just amazing. You should buy it and read it and then read it again and then buy it for somebody else and have them read it. And it's great. Um, it's through this book that my answer to our question was changed. I used to sum up Jesus's work by saying that he forgave our sins. Like I said, you probably would sum it up that way. 
Well, let me suggest to you that Jesus didn't die to forgive your sins. He died to unite you to God and your sins were in the way. And this is a really big deal, I think, because for me personally, for a very long time, um, I thought of salvation as like a party that I'd snuck into that like God tolerated my existence there, right? Like he wasn't gonna kick me out, but he kind of wish I, wished I wasn't there, right? Um, that's because of this narrative of like Jesus forgives my sins. So I'm gonna come to Jesus and I'm gonna get my sins forgiven. Now what do I do in Christianity? What's, what's after that? Ever wonder why like there's a disconnect between evangelism and discipleship? Because when we evangelize, we're like, you need to have your sins forgiven. Okay, now I have my sins forgiven. What do I do next? I don't know, right? It's the missing link here is that you don't come to Christ to get your sins forgiven. You come to Christ to be united to God and your sins are in the way. So when you get saved, there's something for you Union with God, a, a perfectly secure, loving relationship that is never going to end. You are now a part of a family that fully embraces you, fully loves you, and is never going to abandon you, never going to cast you out, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what you do. The perfect family. Our, God, our, our place in God's family is secure precisely because Jesus' place is secure. The Father cannot cease to love the Son, so the Father cannot cease to love those who are in the Son. We are in the Father's house, abiding by the Father's rules, and all that belongs to him is ours. But what's more exciting than that is there's an open invitation from the Father to invite anyone to join this family. None of those people have to follow rules to get here. It's a free offer to everyone. That's the message that we're invited to spread. That's the greater work that we're enabled to do. That's the Father's house. So church, let's grow our Father's family. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that, uh, like Paul wrote all those years ago, that you are exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think. That, that your answers to our questions, your answers to our prayers, in reality are better than what we want. Even if we don't feel it, even if we don't see it, they're better. And so Father, I pray that you would start to shift our perspective so that we can see that. We can see that what you're giving us is better. We can see that your answers are better, even if they're painful even if they're frustrating, even if they make us anxious, they're better. Lord, help us to see that so that we can be at peace, that, Lord, we can be a well of peace to the people around us, that they would be invited to your family as well. And God, not just for us, not just for them, but Lord, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, in the name of your precious son, amen.